Hello and welcome back to another episode of Amy Talks Politics. In today's episode, I will be chatting to ex-MP staffer and now House of Commons journalist Andre Walker about how he got into the job, his opinion on Brexit and the Sky News debate, as well as the various media storms surrounding him, which includes offering ISIS £50,000 to kill him. You won't want to miss this one, believe me. So to kick off the news, uh, Sir Vince Cable has been appointed the new head of the Lib Dems, which, well, make a judgement as you will, but I don't know enough about him, so I can't make a judgement, I'm afraid. It's been quite an interesting two weeks for uh, Mr Donald Trump, as the people in his sort of cabinet or uh, senate have been calling each other names and just generally insulting each other. Um, I watched it on the news at 10 the other day and you can go and watch it and see what they said uh, I'm not going to repeat any of it because it's highly offensive but anyway and then um, Sean Spicer his, or the White House press secretary resigned and was replaced with a guy who said that Donald Trump was psychotic so that kind of shows the people that he hires in his team as well as that uh, Donald Trump has also hired a new chief of staff and um, hopefully he, they will uh, revolt against him and he'll be impeached. So it's been a very interesting few weeks for, uh, for Donald Trump there. Back over on UK shores, it's been a very interesting two weeks, well not really. Uh, the Brexit talks have been going on and depending on what newspaper you read, they're either going great or going badly. So yeah, it's all down to kind of your perception of it really, but there, there won't be much deliberation, I don't think, until divorce bills been paid, as as uh, people want to call it. So yeah, we've had nothing like the fortnight that Donald Trump has, but uh, even still, they're finding things to fill out the news with. So yeah. Now focusing on kind of domestic politics, particularly within sort of the House of Commons and things, I'm speaking with Andre Walker. Hi, Andre. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Yeah, not bad. This is my first time on your show, so I'm delighted. <laughs> Great. So your job is lobby correspondent working in the House of Commons and a journalist for the New York Observer. So what does your job entail and how did you get to be involved in that kind of role like that? That's incredible, actually, because it was uh, it was a complete piece of uh, of good luck. Oh. I, um, I I was working at the House of Commons as a staffer to a Conservative MP. Mm. In fact, I've done various staff jobs for various Conservative politicians over the years, and uh, and I decided to do a postgraduate in journalism at Birkbeck College, which I can highly recommend. It's the uh, evening and weekend place of the University of London. Mm-hmm. So I went there and did a did a postgraduate in journalism, and frankly bumped into uh, a lady called Rebecca Mercer, who is now quite famous because she's the um, the billionaire Republican donor. I didn't know that at the time, it has to be said. And she introduced me to the guys at Breitbart. Uh, once again, a company I'd never heard of in my life. I'd never heard of Andrew Breitbart. I hadn't heard of Steve Bannon. And, um, and I just kind of fell into it. And so I became lobby correspondent for Breitbart. We set up Breitbart London. And I did that for a certain amount of time and then went on to the New York Observer. So, yeah, that's how it happened. Oh, wow. So, kind of, what's the reaction to the general election result within, sort of, the House of Commons since you worked there? Well, I think it's been pretty disastrous.
Christmas for Theresa May. But I, I kind of agree with Jacob Rees-Mogg that, um, you know, the British public know what they're doing. I think yeah. they were dead right on the vote on Brexit. And they decided that Britain would have a minority government. So, uh, you know, I think there was an awful lot of hubris. In fact, wasn't it uh, one newspaper that said that Theresa May had gone from hubris to humiliation? Uh, I think, look, the, uh, the manifesto the Conservatives put out was irrelevant in certain parts uh, on things like fox hunting and mean-spirited in other parts when it came to school lunches and just frankly idiotic when, when it came to the idea of the dementia tax, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the amount of money that people are going to have to pay to, uh, to, for their elderly care. So, so I think the Conservatives got what they deserved. I think they're now reeling from that. But actually, that's potentially an exercise in good governance because actually they, they will presumably pull up their socks over the next weeks and months and we look forward to seeing it. Yeah. So did you vote in the referendum? If so, kind of what's your opinion on Brexit and has it influenced the way you've sort of written about it in your columns? Yeah, so I've been a a big uh, Europhobe for quite some time. I I voted Leave. It has to be said, I don't often vote uh, in elections. The reason is I'm not a big fan of postal votes. I like to vote in person. And normally on election days, I'm too busy uh, to vote in person. And also, I live in Windsor, so it's a relatively safe seat for the Conservatives. I think it's sort of fourth or fifth safest seat in the country. So so I don't normally vote, but in fact, I did vote in the referendum and I voted to leave. I mean, I don't think it's, it's, it's affected the way that I write about things simply because um, I wasn't in favour of the referendum. Because I, I'm kind of like, uh, I suppose, Alex Salmond is in Scotland. I wouldn't, if the referendum had have said that we had to remain in the EU, I wouldn't have become a Europhile overnight as a result. I wanted to pull out of the EU whatever the public thought. Um, although, to be fair, it did turn out well. You've got to bear in mind that this referendum was first proposed by the Liberal Democrats, I think, in the in the two, early 2000s, um, as a way of confirming that Britain wanted to become a region of a European superstate. So I was always sceptical about the referendum and deeply nervous about losing it, it has to be said. You attended the Sky News debate as part of the press. Kind of what were fellow journalists and politicians saying about the May and Corbyn interviews with Jeremy Paxman and with the Sky journalists? Yeah, well, I think I think people were generally extremely dissatisfied with the, the quality of the debates that took place, um, simply because they weren't debates. They were uh, just, you know, sort of these very separated out, these very sort of moribund. I mean, there was that debate where where Amber Rudd went instead, instead of the Prime Minister. It just didn't really work. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, leaders' debates should be a feature of the general election, and I think parties should bang their heads together to, um, to, to get them sorted. I applaud, it has to be said, Gordon Brown for what he did uh, in the, I think, 2010 general election when he agreed to uh, a whole series of debates between himself and Cameron and Clegg and, and I thought they worked really well. And I, I do not buy, necessarily, that um, it's damaging for a Prime Minister to do that. Always remember, Gordon Brown was really a pretty terrible Prime Minister. I always say that the winner of the John Major Award for the worst Prime Minister ever is uh, Gordon Brown. <laughs> um, but he didn't do that badly in that election. And so maybe, actually, the, the, the general wisdom is wrong. Maybe, actually, a Prime Minister having this sort of debate benefits them. Why do you think it benefits them? Well, I don't, I don't know that it does. I'm just saying it, it's certainly possible. Uh, and I think it was certainly damaging for Theresa May to have not turned up for the debate that she didn't turn up to and sent Amber Rudd instead. I, I, I just think that we, we are constantly bombarded with the view that 
Prime Ministers must not do these debates because it denigrates them. And I'm not sure that's necessarily true. I'm not sure there's any evidence to prove that. And I think in the case of Gordon Brown, potentially there's evidence to the contrary. Particularly with kind of like Tony Blair saying Brexit's going to be like a disaster and all this. What's your sort of opinion on that? Well, I wrote an article for the New York Observer yesterday uh, where I compared um, Tony Blair to the United Empire Loyalists. The United Empire Loyalists are the guys who were North American colonists who fought on the British side in the American War of Independence. And they had the good grace and decency uh, to leave the United States of America when they were defeated, and they all moved to Canada. And, um, and I think, frankly, Tony Blair and his friends, you know, what they're doing would have been considered treasonous in a bygone era. And my view is that what, what they have to do now is accept that they're not British, accept that they're European, and really leave the country when Brexit happens. And I know that sounds like a brutal thing to say, and I certainly wouldn't force them to do it, but I do think that they are not. They are now a fifth column. They're not loyal to the United Kingdom. They want the United Kingdom to be a region of a federal state. Tony Blair has become a very rich man by being Europe's lapdog, and, and really he needs to concede that, he needs to be honest about that, and he, and he needs to cut out of British politics and, you know, take his European passport and move to Belgium. <laughs> that is a very good idea. So there's been a couple of kind of media storms around you and kind of your life. You don't, yeah. you don't have to talk about this if you don't want to. Your partner Elliot, can I can we talk about this? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it, for kind of those who don't know, he committed suicide in 2015 and there was a media storm kind of surrounding it as well as accusations of bullying and betrayal and Kind of not being allowed to the funeral and things like that. Kind of, what's your version of events, especially as the press always, kind of as ever, only give a glimpse of the story. So, kind of, what's your your true version? Yeah, I think I think I think the, the crazy thing was that people uh, kind of refused to listen to me about the whole thing. I mean, I've always said there's there's two elements to this. The um, if you were to uh, have seen the Elliot suicide note, which I have to say shocked me. I mean, I was speaking to him the day before, um, and and actually, what what really happened was this. Um, he contacted me and said he was going to meet up with a conservative official who wants to talk to him about an issue of betrayal. And he said to me, do you know anything about it? I said, no, 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 no idea. He said, no problem. I'll check and report back. And mm-hmm. then uh, that night he met up with this person who has, it has to be said, denied uh, talking to him about betrayal. And then he immediately went home, wrote a suicide note and killed himself the following day. Now, in that, that suicide note was, was often characterised as having accused me of bullying. In fact, he didn't. He accused me of betrayal. So very clearly, what was said to him uh, that night uh, about me was something that deeply upset him and led him to commit suicide. Now, that is a pretty depressing uh, p- position for me to be in. Unfortunately, I think it's unlikely I'm ever going to find out what was said to him, uh, not least because the person in question has denied saying anything at all. Um, so, so it's pretty impossible. Um, so on, the, on the wider issue, I mean, I, I always took the view that he had arguments with people in the Tory party, but, um, but that he, um, but they were, they were essentially not particularly serious. Now, obviously, what I wasn't aware of is the fact that he had, a, he had mental health problems and had attempted suicide five times in the past. And in fact, on one occasion, somebody had flipped a coin in his drink and he'd attempt to hang himself as a result. Now, oh God. You know, it, it's, it's clearly remiss of me not to have known that, but, uh, but it's something I didn't know. And, uh, and, and it was actually, it has to be said, stunned when I, when I found it out. And he'd been treated in a psychiatric 
institution for a propensity to to have suicidal thoughts uh, for no particularly good reason. Now, why on earth he was engaging in national politics, given he had that problem, I have no idea. But, but you know, I, I shoulder my elements, uh, my blame, simply because I ought to have known that that was the position. I ought to have known that he was suffering from a serious mental health problem. And in fact, in fact, I had no idea. But you can't, you can't know if somebody doesn't tell you. Like, if, if you don't talk about it, you don't know. Well, that's absolutely right, and I think I think there was a wider lesson that could have been learned, which wouldn't, which will not be learned, which is that presumably the reason he didn't tell anybody that he had this problem is that he felt he would be discriminated against yeah. in politics for having a mental health problem, mm-hmm. and that is right. That that is what would have happened. Now, I would have preferred to have had an open debate about discrimination against people with mental health issues in politics, but but that's not the debate that the, that the public or the press wanted. The public whether he was bullied to death. Now, from my point of view, I don't believe he was bullied to death, but even if he was, um, no matter what the Mail on Sunday and the crazed journalist Simon <laughs> Walter says, um, in fact, Elliot did not suggest that I uh, bullied him at all, and his suggestion that he committed suicide over bullying uh, was not directed at me. It's very clear from the suicide notes. What was, however, clear is he felt I'd betrayed him. Now, I would, I would love to know exactly what the details of that were. I, I do not believe I betrayed him, but without actually seeing the allegation, it's quite hard for me to know. And as I say, I will never see the allegation, so I've, I've kind of come to terms with that. Oh, that's just, uh, I'm so sorry to hear that about kind of all of it. <laughs> These things happen. Yeah. Um, you've also recently had um, been all over the press again for um, saying that... <laughs> You would uh, pay uh, pay ISIS fifty thousand pounds to kill you. Yes, I'm. Yeah, ver- I'm very curious as to why you kind of did that and the repercussions it's had, if any. Okay, so um, so the main reason I did it really was, um, and, and I think people need to understand this: there was no intention of me having a duel with my sword with the Islamic State. That isn't the point of it. Nor, and some people contacted me and asked me about how I was going to pay out the 50000 if I was killed. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not overly worried. Not overly worried about that. Actually, the point of this is to show the public that, um, that, uh, that these terrorists essentially are cowards. Very easy to blow up a group of people uh, at Manchester Arena. At a concert, it has to be said that my, um, my nieces had wanted to go to but been unable to get tickets. Um, it's very easy to sort of mount the curb and mow people down. But actually, these people are not, don't, do not have the gumption and the guts to go and fight the police or fight the army or even fight a fat bloke with a sword. And actually, the point I was making was not that I feel in any danger, not that I believe anyone's going to knock on my door, quite the opposite. Actually, these cowardly layabouts whose main contribution to life is sitting in their underpants eating sugar puffs and smoking weed, these guys actually should be exposed for the cowardice, the losers they really are, the unemployable wrecks they really are. They're not going to, they're not going to fight the fat bloke with the sword, they're not going to fight the police, they're not going to fight the army. How scared of them should we be? I argue not at all, they're just a bunch of scumbags. That was the point of the bet. Ah, that's very interesting. Um, I was going to say, on kind of the subject of sort of terrorism and things, you weren't around when the Westminster attack happened, so kind of what's your knowledge of it and kind of what was your reaction to it? Well, 
yeah, my, my reaction, funnily enough, I put an article once again in the New York Observer about this. I think the problem was um, uh, PC Keith Palmer was obviously on carriage gates, unarmed, because the feeling was it would look bad to have armed police in the tourist photos. Now, I think I, I'm not in favour of arming every police officer. I don't think it's necessary. The Police Federation don't agree that it's necessary, and certainly senior police don't. Um, but I do think that there are certain important facilities where you have to have a level of security. Um, there is an entrance of Parliament, and, and I wrote about this, but I've always been non-specific about where it is. There is an entrance of Parliament that was regularly guarded by one unarmed security guard. And if you've got through that gate, and gate, uh, gate is a strong term for it, checkpoint is a better term, uh, if you got through that checkpoint, uh, you would be within, you know, 20, 30 metres of almost every MP's office. And so I, so I think that actually we were, Parliament was undermanned in terms of security and there, and there should be more firearms officers there. Now, it, it is fair to say that the, uh, that the security services have upped their game since Keith Palmer died. And the, the, what they've come to now is there are still unarmed officers at Carriage Gate, uh, but they are backed up by armed officers who are sort of 15 feet behind them. So, so now all of those security gaps have been plugged. But I, I thought it was pretty disgraceful that somebody was able to get into New Palace Yard in the way they did. And Keith Palmer clearly did not stand a chance. And, of course, the other point is about Keith Palmer. Previously to being called police constable Keith Palmer, he was known as Gunner Keith Palmer because he was actually in the, um, the Royal Artillery. So here is a man who was very adept with firearms uh, and, extremely, and an extremely skilled person with, with weaponry. And so the idea that he could not be armed at the gate seems to me to be ludicrous. Well, that I think that's all the questions I have for you today. Well, great, it's great to be on. It's it's great to speak to you. Great. All right. Well, I'm going to have to run. Great. Okay. Bye. Bye. So that wraps up another episode of Amy Talks Politics. Thank you very much for listening and thank you to Andre for participating in my interview. If you want to subscribe on iTunes or Mixcloud, you can do. Just go to mixcloud.com slash amytalkspolitics or on iTunes, just search Amy Talks Politics in the iTunes store. Be sure to follow me and Andre on social media. Andre is at AndreJPWalker on Twitter. And I'm at Amy Talks P on Twitter and at Amy Talks Politics on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.